Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Anna Levchuk. Anna leads the healthcare vertical at S&P Global, where she's focused on facilitating data exchange among industry players and investors with the ultimate goal of accelerating progress in healthcare. Prior to joining S&P Global, Anna worked at United Healthcare Group, where she was responsible for digital innovation and M&A for several divisions, both domestically and internationally. Previously, she held positions at NYU Health, where her role was to bridge translational research and practice of medicine, and at Healthogen, Aetna's incubator and investment fund. Anna holds an MBA degree from the University of Chicago and enjoys playing violin in her spare time. Uh, it's, it's a you know, data-rich uh, environment today, but the question around what we do with what we have and how we process this data, what data sources we're taking in is critical, whether it be responding to COVID-19 epidemics or, or you know, market intelligence on how you're going to operate your health system or company. And so it's such a privilege to have Anna here with us today to, to discuss the importance of, of data. And so, Anna, just a privilege to have you here with us. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Sol, for inviting me uh, to the podcast and giving me the opportunity to share um, a few things about my work and my thoughts in uh, healthcare space. Absolutely, Anna. So wh- what would you say inspires your work in healthcare? Uh, it's a great question, and it's a very simple question for me to answer. Um, the answer is greater good behind the work that I do and its immediate applicability. And perhaps a bit of a career history will help me to illustrate the point. So I started my career as a strategy consultant, and I love the intellectual component of the work. But frankly, this work is called Ivory Tower for a good reason. Uh, specifically, it's rather limited. it has rather limited applications in real life. And then I became an investment banker for a very short period of time, and that didn't appeal to me either because, you know, despite the importance of facilitating the work uh, of the financial system, I saw very little applicability of this work in my day-to-day life. And then finally, I found healthcare. And found is a bit of tongue-in-cheek remark here because I actually come from a family of physicians uh, who also uh, do research. So, and it's extended family, not just my parents or my siblings. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while given my professional credentials, my work is on the business side. Throughout my career, I had an opportunity to impact healthcare delivery through investing, designing models of care, and promoting research. And this provides me with a satisfaction at the personal level, which in turn helps me to get out of bed every day. Well, you know what? It's uh, it's certainly important work, and you know these days with you know, quarantine and everything that we have going on, it, having that reason to get out of bed is 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 key. And, and sure. <laughs> wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and Anna, the, the 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 thoughtful work that you're doing is, is is fascinating. You know, you you've worked on the on the payer side of things, on the on the uh, on the investment side and strategy side. Now at, at S&P, you guys are, are, are doing some fascinating things at the healthcare vertical. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you guys are, are adding value to the healthcare ecosystem. Yeah. So healthcare, uh, S&P Global is traditionally thought of as a financial services firm. And we are. However, one of our divisions, market intelligence, also provides all kinds of data. And interestingly, healthcare was the last segment that the company entered. 
And in my biased opinion, it is the most promising sector. Why? Very simple. As a country, we spend three and a half trillion a year on healthcare. To put it in perspective, that's about one third of all healthcare spend in the world. And those two facts alone tell us that uh, this trend, spending trend, is unsustainable. So, what can be done to change that? Well, we need an effective, systematic reform uh, that, among other things, will look at better aligning incentives within healthcare system, focusing on wellness rather than illness. In other words, emphasizing prevention over treatment, and of course, also improving productivity in healthcare segments. So what SMP uh, Market Intelligence does, we strive to provide data that can help answer all of these questions. Now, I want to also say that collecting and collating such data is a very lengthy process, and we are still at the beginning of it. But when we finally succeed in providing access to holistic healthcare data uh, to the market, there's still be a need for reform and continuous refinement. So I don't want to have the listeners to leave the listeners with an impression that data will solve our problems, but I want to emphasize that being able to analyze your performance as a healthcare player or a system is certainly the prerequisite to success in turning around. American healthcare. Well said, Anna. And, you know, I, I think about that, you know, analyzing your performance, a lot of uh, performance analytics is really, you know, not, not complete in, in its view or, or, or it's biased and doesn't have the right pieces. And even, even thinking forward, like beyond your silo in healthcare, right? So if you're listening to this, you're thinking, Hey, I got it figured out. Okay. <laughs> if you're thinking that you're probably in trouble, uh, first of all, <laughs> but um, secondly, the, what's going on outside of your healthcare silo? A lot of things that are happening outside of, say, home care or the acute space or telemedicine could really be w- what's going to impact you and what you're doing today and and in the future in your in your strategic plans. So maybe Anna, you could highlight some of the things that you do differently than what's available today that could help folks in in their journey to to make the healthcare system more, more efficient? Absolutely. By the way, I love that question. And if any listener thinks, hey, I got that figured out, please give me a call because we may want to hire you because we certainly <laughs> haven't figured it out yet. I love it. Now, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated question. So how, so, you know, what, what do we do differently? I think, and I think you you led the question towards it uh, perfectly. You know, it's there are a lot of silos within the healthcare. Uh, traditionally, when I say healthcare to my colleagues, they think pharmaceuticals and hospitals. That's great, but that's definitely not uh, not everything. Governments have an immense stake in healthcare, and uh, you know, academic research centers and companies that we traditionally think of as technology companies are all entering healthcare. And they, that field is so ripe with examples from Apple and Google entering mm-hmm. it with like digital analytics capabilities to also companies that uh, used to be a sort of a traditional industrial engineering company such as Siemens and Philips. And now Siemens has a healthcare arm and Philips pivoted entirely towards healthcare. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was all, you know, a preface. And the, the goal was to highlight that, you know, healthcare is multifaceted and there is this, you know, um, expansion of healthcare outside of your traditional 
you know, doctor slash pharmacist diet. So what, what SNP does, we strive to provide a holistic view. And there, is, there are lots of fantastic companies that happen to be competitors of ours that provide data, for example, in life sciences space, or they cover hospitals exclusively, or they do a great job in gathering data about clinical trials. However, the healthcare product that we are building will provide all of these types of information plus additional so-called alternative data. On top of it, we also would like to link all of these data sources. So if you're looking for, um, you know, a specific piece of information, it not only, um, the, our search systems not only give you uh, that particular answer, but also shows show you the impact in the ecosystem. So I hear a few examples of the uh, other types of data that we are um we already have or currently putting on our marketplace, and that could be very important in analyzing healthcare holistically. The first one I would like to highlight is supply chain data. A few years ago, SNC acquired a company called Panjiva, and when I first heard about it, you know, I thought, oh, supply chain data, cool, uh, really has nothing to do with me. But I think COVID-19 uh, showed us really well that it has to do everything with all of us. So this data is probably the hottest data set we have these days, and it's, mm -hmm. it's really fantastic, and it can tell you who are the uh, suppliers of a certain thing, what that thing is, uh, who are the buyers of it. It shows all sorts of relationship uh, within that ecosystem. Another type of data that we have is environmental data. And I also don't, I don't think I need to emphasize the importance of uh, environmental data, in other words, ESG data, uh, when it comes to population health. So uh, think about linking some powerful data sets such as, you know, the pollution, maybe, uh, maybe chemical pollution, maybe noise pollution, with sales of pharmaceutical data to, uh, so I'm sorry, pharmaceutical sales data to understand, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of demand and diseases a certain uh, not optimal environment creates. Hmm. And then, of course, we provide macroeconomic data and company data. And company data includes coverage of private companies. A lot of innovation right now happens in the private sector, and it's no coincidence that pharmaceutical companies are looking to buy innovation rather than entirely rely on their development departments. And as they look into introduce these new solutions to the market, they need to have a insight into who's doing what, who's developing what, and how they're doing. And that's the data we are trying to provide. Well, it's uh, it's it's clear all the opportunities to to dive into supply chain, environmental data, macroeconomic data, company data, all these things that that uh, we could leverage to 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 make the right decisions at the right time. And and so I'd love to hear more from from you on 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 what you believe. Maybe an example of how how you've improved outcomes or made business better with this data that you're offering? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, we provide mechanisms for feedback. And this enables business strategists and investments and healthcare professionals to look back and understand what worked, what didn't work, and what they need to change to go forward. 
And one example, and I gave it away a little bit when I started talking about supply chain data, but right now, and specifically dating this podcast, but right now is mid-April uh, 2020, and we are in the middle of COVID outbreak. I think the entire country is reading reading this news about the nurses and doctors working overtime and um, and often not being adequately protected. We know about the shortages of ventilators, about shortages of ICU beds, uh, and so on and so forth. So can S&P help with something like that? Absolutely. And I have a really fascinating example. So as I mentioned, our supply chain data allows, uh, allows people to understand very, at a very granular level what kinds, kind of goods cross U.S. border. And when we saw some of the reports in the press about companies struggling with, uh, with having enough supplies for their uh, healthcare professionals, the first thing we did, we reached out to them and offered them um, access, free access to, um, to Panjiva. How can this help them? Well, very simply. Um, so the first thing they can do, for example, they, they have a shortage of N95s. All they can need to do, they need to go into the system, put N95, and then they will be able to see a few things that I think will be very valuable. First of all, they will they will be able to see who in the U.S. bought those supplies. And oftentimes, of course, they're the big resellers, so they can contact them immediately, and I'm sure that that will streamline their PPE acquisition process. In addition, they can also see who the shippers were, in other words, who made those supplies. So these these are you know very very basic examples, but of course it doesn't it, it isn't limited to just uh, just PPE. It could be anything from pharmaceuticals to to medical devices. So Mount Sinai was one example. However, you know I talked a lot about sort of the benefit of having data to not only to make real time decisions but also to to provide new analysis and new solutions. And one of the great examples uh, will be the collaboration that we had just last week with MIT and a number of other prominent organizations who are really taking fight against COVID-19 seriously. So what MIT did is they hosted a hackathon, and the two goals of that hackathon was to provide um, protection for vulnerable populations, and that's something we cannot help with. But the other part was how to improve performance of healthcare systems in this environment. And that's something we can certainly improve with, uh, help with improving. And that goes to reallocating the resources, but also to making sure that supply chains are perfectly enabled. Well, uh, fascinating examples, Anna. And, you know, you think about the situation that we're in and, and even, even before and in the future, right? There's certain things that a Google search won't yield you. <laughs> and when you're when you're dealing with a system-wide strategy or gut checking your investment strategy, you know, a Google search is not gonna do it, right? You want something validated, you want something that's a little deeper, a little more granular. And I think that's what you're getting at, Anna. You're you're you guys are providing some insights that are not readily available. On the on the internet. Oh, absolutely. And the the interesting part is, yes, 
you definitely cannot go and check bills of lading easily. But uh, even with the simpler things like, you know, hospitals, what are the hospitals in the U.S.? Well, good luck finding that information on Google. A lot of it is available, but if you try to combine a list of all the hospitals, just hospitals, not care delivery, um, you know, not mental health facilities, just typical hospitals, you'll probably need five people and five full days of work of Google search. And that's, that's definitely something that you're trying to circumvent and make easier for people and sort of make it available at your fingertips. Um, yeah, that's and, up. yeah and, and then it's like and even after five days and five people's worth of work like that like is that list even reliable what you're left with you know it's like it's it's like you're leaving it up to luck absolutely that's you know that's another great point while google is a fantastic search engine and we're all still learning from it uh there's you know there's this aspect of uh, not always being 100% on point, and that's obviously what uh, what corporations like ours are trying to screen out, uh, things that are not accurate or not up to date. Yeah. That, so, you know, and, and that leads to, to the to the point that data, you know, is hard and, and, and it's not always clean and it has challenges. And on the topic of, of challenge, you know, what would you say has been one of the biggest setbacks with the business uh, in the healthcare vertical? And what was the key learning from that that's made you guys better? Yeah, so the setback is still ongoing. So hopefully we do have a key learning there, but uh, but I can't say I have a solution. So the setback is basically uh, the uh, finding the right balance between data privacy and, uh, and usefulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I mean by this? It's... Um, you know, we want to provide as much data and as granular data as possible. And oftentimes, not all healthcare data uh, has a you know individual component. However, many data points will have something that will reveal who they or has a, have a potential to reveal who the individual is. Now, we are very strict about upholding the um, privacy of. Uh, you know, entities we collect the data from, whether those are people or, uh, you know, or commercial entities. So we need to find that balance. However, um, you know, it's um, it's hard because we lack a few things at the regulatory level. Mm-hmm. Those are, you know, good understanding of who owns the data. And then also, you know, we have HIPAA, which is great and very important, but it's really, it's up to debate right now. You know, how much of it is disclosed? Can somebody take my data and misuse it? And a great example of misuse will be, you know, if a, if a, a health insurance company gets a hold of your, let's say, genetic data, uh, can they, you know, increase your rates based on the genetic conditions that you, A, may or may not know about, B, that you know, may sort of come to life within your lifetime or not. Maybe it's just sort of in your genes, but uh, those those conditions will never, you're never going to suffer from those conditions. Mm-hmm. So those are big questions. And uh, personally, I tend to sit on the liberal side of data sharing. And honestly, I would start to sharing my data first. However, I understand why people feel very careful about um about this need to share their data and why we have so many debates on this topic. 
So what is the solution? Um, I don't think the solution sits at a company level, to be honest. Yes, every company, ours and all the other companies that provide healthcare data will need to decide what the acceptable balance of uh, data sharing for them is. However, in my opinion, I think there should be literally a multinational task force that can tackle questions of healthcare data ownership, privacy, and most importantly, ensuring security and appropriate use of data already collected. And once we solve for that, I have no doubt that floodgates of efficiency will open in healthcare. To me, solving for this will have an effect comparable to uh, impact of decoding genome. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, and it's challenging, right? Because there's so many people are, have has have such strong opinions and it becomes like one like you know talking about politics or religion you know or, or just some of those hot topics right that that become the reason yeah. why uh, one politician wins versus the other in a in a in a in a political race how do we get past oh, that how do we get past the emotional nature of how we feel about that you know, it's a, it's a great question, and I only have a subjective answer to that. Uh, I think for me, uh, sharing my data will be even easier if I knew that it can only be used in specific circumstances, for example, for research, mm-hmm. or even for things like, you know, what pharmaceutical companies decide or medical devices companies decide to fo- focus on, sort of some sort of a population health level of decision making. I'm very comfortable with that. On the other hand, of course, I do not want it to be used uh, to discriminate me in one way or the other, whether it will be employment opportunities or insurance premium, as I already mentioned. So I think what's important here is uh, to have a good uh, regulatory framework or legislative framework in place about the acceptable uses of data and then also the security of such data. You know, so as you mentioned, I, I very much agree with you, the uh, financial data, some of the personal data about your beliefs, uh, such as political, religious opinions, is uh, is highly sensitive, and so is healthcare. It might be even one of the the most sensitive out of three. So, security and appropriate use that is locked at the highest level, legislative levels, but also something that can probably be reviewed and updated every ten years, as we or so as we have new cases, use cases emerge in this field. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, it's some great requirements. Uh, I, I agree. And, you know, having that security, that regulatory framework is, 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 is really fundamental uh, if we're going to get there. And then whether or not you disagree or, or opt in or opt out, then, you know, at least if you opt in, you know that the frameworks to, to protect you are there. So uh, great, great discussion here. Anna, what would you say you're most excited about today? Well, it's hard to answer this question without inadvertently dating this podcast again, given that we're in (laughs) mid-April 2020. So I'm really excited about the end of self-isolation, whatever that happens, but I am not advocating for premature end of that. (laughs) Joking aside. No, for sure. <laughs> and I'm joking I think aside, I'm really, I'm really excited about the rise of digital health. And as I mentioned before, 
our productivity in healthcare is low. And by our, I mean United States of America. We overspend on frill services, such as doorman and beautiful artwork on pianos in the hallways. But on essentials, sometimes we understand. And, you know, PPE, not to overuse that example, is a fantastic example. In addition, most of the countries in the world, not just the U.S., lack adequate number of physicians, especially specialists. So while you may have enough of uh, general practitioners, which is not the trend in this country, in China, let's say, uh, oncology specialists are really in high demand, especially in more rural areas. Another huge area of shortage nurses. Um, we don't have enough nurses in the U.S. We don't have enough nurses in uh, U.K. and Europe in general. So it's it's a it's a shortage that's only becoming worse and worse as the years go by. And finally, we often don't know what works and what doesn't work clinically, as we can't track it. Here at Getting Digital Health can solve for all of these things. So, you know, telehealth expands access. Um, so you uh, you don't have to come to America if you live in rural China. All you need to do is you need to hop on on a telehealth consultation and have a consultation with American cancer specialists. This is actually an existing service. You know, it can um, uh, things like, you know, telehealth, but also other kinds of digital health uh, can ensure that we're not overspending money on non-essential things like making hospital comfortable. You know, we are actually going to be spending money on providing access to people at home when they don't need to go to the hospital at all, whether that's comfortable or not comfortable hospital. And, you know, I can go with these examples for a very long time. Digital health can be uh, applied in many ways from 3D printing of teeth to, uh, to, you know, having booths that provide telehealth consultation and also dispense pharmaceuticals. These things also already in the, exist in China. So what I will say, as excited as I am about digital health, of course, it also has limitations. You know, the app can't change someone's bedpan or give patient a hug. So the goal is not to substitute humans with digital technology. It's never going to be possible. Uh, however, it is to combine both and increase productivity and efficiency of healthcare professionals while reducing the strain on them. Some great points, Anna. And, you know, going back to the beginning of our chat, you talked about tracking performance and digital health is one of those things that will help us better track performance. A lot of things are you know, not being done well and they're being siloed or still even written on pen and paper or just a Excel document and some dusty computer. It's a phenomenal landscape. And, you know, before we even, you know, decided to go down the road of kind of what we were going to talk about today, you know, we were going to focus on digital health, but times shift. And as many of you have, have heard my my quote of, or like the, the quote that I've been uh, targeting here, Anna, is a quote by Charles Darwin. You know, it's not the smartest and it's not the strongest that survive. It's the most adaptable. And um, we're adapting here for, for you listeners. <laughs> and so Anna and I decided to <laughs> take a different framework. Um, what would you say is, uh, is your favorite book, Anna, that you'd recommend to the listeners? 
Uh, there are so many. Um, there is this incredible amount of really good publications, whether those are books or articles, but there are two that I actually man- made a mandatory reading for all of my new hires. So the first one is called American Sickness, and it's by Elizabeth Rosenthal. It's a hard book to read. It's an exceptionally hard book to read because she demystifies so many things, and she goes on a crusade against American healthcare system. But her opinion is exceptionally informed. She's a daughter of physicians. She's a physician, I believe a Harvard-trained physician herself. She also works as an investigative journalist, and uh, she's the head of Kaiser Foundation. So I think she's probably one of the best equipped people to um, to uh, expose the flaws of healthcare system. And I think she does it with a good uh, goal to make it better. So yes, hard book to read, but highly recommend it. And another one is something that also, you know, very prominent in this COVID um, crisis situation. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, you know, why did Italy did so poorly. What's happening in Spain? Why the U.S. is, you know, the leading country in terms of COVID cases? And why did South Korea did so well? Well, I think some of the answers could be found in a great book by T.R. Reid that's called The Healing of America. So unlike Elizabeth Rosenthal, T.R. Reid is not an investigative journalist, so his book has been criticized for some subjectivity, but it's fantastic because what it does is it tracks the healthcare system from a perspective of a layman, you know, a very smart layman, but not a physician across different countries. He looks at a number of European, uh, Asian, uh, and healthcare systems, Canada, US. He breaks them down very nicely. He shows a few models, and he also tries to zero in on what works and what doesn't. And I think this international comparison is really applicable to today's world. Love it. What a great recommendation. Uh, American Sickness and the Healing of America. You all know uh, where to go, outcomesrocket.health. In the search bar, you could type in Anna Levchuk or type in S&P, and you'll find the show notes for our entire uh, podcast today, a full transcript, as well as links to to check out the healthcare vertical at S&P, as well as how to get in touch with uh, with Anna and her team. This has uh, been such a fascinating discussion with you, Anna. I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, why don't you go ahead and leave us with a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with you or your team to continue the conversation? Sure. So I'll start with the easier part of the question. The best way to reach me is definitely LinkedIn. Uh, I'm quite active. I love the platform. So please feel free to reach out. And in terms of the closing thoughts, um, uh, you know, uh, full disclosure, I knew that this question is coming. So I did I did prepare for this question with three quotes. Those are my favorite quotes. Um, <laughs> Let's hear them. And, and they're coming from Warren Buffett, Donald Trump, and Tim Cook. Ah. So roughly, roughly in order. In 2017, Warren Buffett repeated his original quote from uh, around early 2008, saying once again, medical costs are the tapeworm of American economic competitiveness. And then he proceeded with citing the cost in the 60s. The costs were about 5% of GDP. Uh, now healthcare costs stand at 18%. Also in 2017, wow. Donald Trump now famously said, nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. 
And this remark was prompted by debates around Obamacare. And finally, in 2019, Tim Cook, Apple CEO, said, if you zoom out into the future and you look back and ask the question, what was Apple's greatest contribution to make mankind? It will be about health. So what am I trying to show with these quotes? First is that the way we approach healthcare in the U.S. is a problem. Second, that it is immensely complicated. And third, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And in my opinion, it happens to be in the form of new care delivery models, including digital ones. Well, beautifully said and some great quotes. I love it. I mean, what what a great compilation of quotes there to make anybody think, especially this audience of uh, sophisticated listeners. <laughs> just an uh, incredible thought that you leave us with, Anna, and uh, just uh, wishing you and, and, and your loved ones uh, health and, and success and, and listeners, uh, you know, we, we certainly appreciate you tuning in for, for the insights that Anna shared with us and Anna, just a, a big thanks to you. Thanks so much for, for, for all you've shared. Thank you Saul, for giving me this platform and I can only echo your lovely comment and wish you and your loved ones, as well as all the listeners, uh, health first and foremost in this difficult time. 